Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on thirst. What are you drinking right now? Uh, absolutely nothing. Oh, no, what? wait. I do ha- I have water here at my desk. Water. Oh, okay, I'm always good. drinking water. I'm, I'm a water guy. Uh, you know, some people are really into tea. I almost never drink tea. I go coffee, water. That That's pretty much it uh, during the daytime hours, at least. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm currently drinking tea. I generally go coffee, uh, tea, tea, water, tea, and then water. Uh, okay. And then, then when the evening comes, you know, maybe I'll have something, something else to drink. But uh, yeah, right now it is tea, which is essentially water, but with extra things added to it. You know, I sometimes get confused about what tea means because uh, I, I think of tea as being a specific kind of plant. Like, isn't there a tea tree? Again, I, I don't know much about tea. So I think about it in that way. Uh, but then you can make a tea out of like anything basically that you steep in water right people make mushroom teas people with all kinds of just leaves oh, yeah. and plant stuff in water and that's tea also yeah like i mean there's there's proper tea and that's generally what i'm what i'm drinking i'm drinking uh, uh you know a, a dark tea or maybe a green tea but mm-hmm. also sometimes i'll have a turmeric tea which is uh, uh like like turmeric and ginger and a little coconut oil and a little honey, hot mm-hmm. water, but it doesn't actually contain tea, so it's not completely accurate to call it such. I guess it's sort of how uh, not all Band-Aids are technically Band-Aids or, or Xeroxes <laughs> or whatever. Has this been a terrible intro? Maybe we can cut my tea thing. <laughs> no, no, this is, a, this is a, an intro that the, the people can relate to. People can have thoughts on this. It's always good to start off asking what a word means. Uh, so I ter- turns out I know nothing about tea. I have well, no no clue. Well, there, there you go. We need to come back and do uh, an episode or a series of episodes on tea. It's a, a fascinating subject, fascinating history. Okay, well, we're going to jump back into some of the the science that we were talking about in the last episode, where I was reviewing uh, an interesting paper that I'd read summarizing the uh, the recent state of research on the biology of thirst that was uh, – it was a paper published in Current Biology. Uh, we had to break off in the middle of talking about it. But, but before we get back into that, Rob, I think you wanted to talk about the taste of water, which I think is in itself a very interesting subject. Yeah, it's, it's a strange one because we probably don't think about it enough. But but we often talk about it, especially when we when we travel from one place to another. Um, we if you look back on uh, think back on water that you've consumed in the past, you may have spe- specific memories of different waters. Mm-hmm. Um, like I remember when my family lived uh, in the country and we had well water, and it had a it had a distinctive taste. And I, I don't I can't say that I loved it. But if I were to encounter the exact same flavor profile again, it would probably make me nostalgic, you know, like it, it's, it's a definite flavor that is tied to a definite place and time. Warning that this is a little crude, but I don't know of how else to explain it. Have you ever been somewhere that had farty water? Um, well, it's kind of sulfury water. Yeah, so kind, of, mean, kind of like water from the... Yes. Th- that's kind of what this was like. Yeah, it, was, it, it had kind of a, a fire and brimstone kind of flavor to it. Oh, okay. That's a more elegant way to put it. Well, the denizens of hell are not insulted. They're flattered that you would you would compare uh, th- this foul drinking water to flat drinks. Uh-huh. 
But um, you know, but then sometimes uh, I don't know. There's there's also beach water. You know, like I I mm. anytime I'm I'm in Florida and I'm having Florida water, like it has its own. It tends to have its own bouquet, uh, its own flavor yeah. profile. That uh, at the time I'm not enjoying, but then after I'm back and drinking tastier water, I'm kind of uh, I kind of long for it. You know, because like this is the water of um, of of the vacation that I uh, am no longer on. That sort of thing. I remember when I was in like uh, middle school, I went to New Mexico and we went somewhere there where the water was very, I don't know, the tap water was almost kind of frothy somehow. <laughs> it was like a kind of kind of white and cloudy. And I remember thinking it had a strange taste. I, I don't know what to connect that to, if it was supposed to be like that or, or not. Yeah. So I, I guess one thing we can definitely... Uh, Established here is that um, there there certainly seems to there is an objective difference in in drinking waters uh, mm. from one place to another uh, you know Atlanta water versus Florida water that sort of thing uh, but there's also this wide variety in how people just interpret the taste of water um, you know I think we we often think of water as being neutral or tasteless. Um, if you're mixing a cocktail, for example, you don't want to shake it too long with the uh, the crushed ice because you will, what will happen? You will water it down. Water, in this case, is the antithesis of an interesting flavor profile. Well, but the other half of that is uh, sometimes people screw up making a drink because they don't shake it with ice at all when they're supposed to. And they don't understand that shaking with ice not only cools the drink, but it also adds a certain amount of water to the drink, which is an important ingredient. Yes, Absolutely. So you're supposed to shake a cocktail and you don't, you end up with a drink that's usually too strong or too sweet. Yeah, there, there's a balance to be maintained there, much like yeah. the, the, the balance of, uh, of water in the human body that we discussed in the last episode. Many of you out there have probably met someone who claims to not like the taste of water. Um, sometimes they'll, uh, uh, th these individuals will, um, will use flavored water or other beverages instead and will tend to shy away from just drinking straight water. Um, but uh, I don't know, if you're like me, you know, Perhaps you've noticed times when a glass of ice water is just super satisfying, um, you know, particularly on a hot day, like a, just a, a super cold water, lots of ice in it. Um, I, would, I would tend to, I, I, I have found myself wanting to categorize that as delicious, mm -hmm. though at the same time feeling weird for thinking that because it's like, it's water. It, I can't say it's delicious. It, it has no flavor, right? That's what we're, we believe. Um, another, another one I really like is the first a sip of, of cold water that I have after I have brushed my teeth. Mm, um, yeah. Now, after I've brushed my teeth and rinsed and spit, I'm not drinking yeah. <laughs> um, uh, water that way. But yeah, like after I've, I've brushed my teeth, I've walked into another room, I have a sip of water, super cool and refreshing. Agreed. Much better than a sip of orange juice after you've brushed your teeth, which is, yeah, I don't know if you ever tried that. <laughs> um, it's it's famously probably. disgusting. Oh, this is, this is always the worst, uh, really getting into the weeds here. But, um, that that feeling when you you were you're busy in the morning, you uh, go brush your teeth, you come back and you find your coffee cup and it still has half a cup of coffee in it. Mm -hmm. Oh, heartbreaking! Because you know you can't drink it now. If you drink, you can drink it. You can you can throw it back, but it's going to taste awful. I wonder if anybody's ever done a controlled study of how long you have to wait after brushing your teeth before those those horrible flavor interactions uh, fade away. I don't think it's too long. It's yeah. I mean, if I had to venture to guess, I'd say. It couldn't be more than like 20 minutes, right? Yeah. Now, of course, a lot of this, some of this is going to vary culture to culture. In some cultures, it's not, um, it's not considered advisable to drink cold water. Uh, you want to drink hot water. Uh, hmm. So, uh, you know, there's, it's going it's to it's vary. There's a lot of cultural stuff going on here as well. 
Oh, I've never heard of that. What's what's an example of a of a culture that favors hot water drinking? Uh, there's a connection, if, if memory serves, as a connection to traditional Chinese medicine here, where um, uh, the idea is that it's better for your health to drink hot water as opposed to cold water. Uh, mm. But I don't remember any of the deeper details regarding it. All right. Well, to get us back on track, you had mentioned that maybe maybe it was wrong to say that tap water, you know, cold water coming in on a hot day was delicious because water itself doesn't really have a taste. And I think this is a common understanding, but is that true? Like, it, does it have a taste? Uh, does it not have a taste? Does it have a taste we're just so used to that we can't taste it anymore? Yeah, um, well, like to, well, to go back to, to uh, Aristotle, Aristotle was certainly kind of in the no-taste camp, uh, stating that mm. it was, for the most part, tasteless. Uh, the idea that water is the, it, it may deliver flavors, but it, it's it, in and of itself does not have flavor. But a lot of uh, a lot of work has gone into this uh, this question. Uh, uh, some some interesting studies. Um, I was reading um, an article by uh, Berlingame et al. Uh, titled "Understanding the Basics of Tap Water Taste," published in the American Waterworks Association Journal in two thousand seven. <laughs> um, and uh, they point out that the, uh, the, the basically the, uh, you get the the water is going to contain negatively and positively charged ions as minerals. Uh, you're going to find that in your tap water, and that can positively and negatively affect taste. Uh, this is especially key, they point out, as far as water regulations and reverse osmosis go, uh, which is to say, without without getting into all the chemistry, there are certainly differences in water flavor due to different minerals and other elements in the water. Now, another interesting thing about, um, about tap water, uh, especially... Uh, generally, when you're drinking tap water, uh, the drinking water probably contains calcium, magnesium, sodium. Um, and according to uh, Azale et al. in a, an article in the Journal of General Internal Medicine from 2001 titled Comparison of Mineral Content of Tap Water and Bottled Waters, the mineral content of drinking water uh, uh, like this ultimately may be a, an important source of daily recommended mineral dosages, uh, certainly in the United States, uh, which was the, the area they were looking at here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so basically, while we might think of water as being this thing that we would, well, let's just purify the heck out of it. Uh, just give me the purest water possible. The purest water possible uh, isn't necessarily going to be the healthiest or the tastiest, um, which I, I th- thought was an interesting um, distinction. Like when, when, we, when we purchase bottled water, we're not going and, bu- and buying the distilled water usually. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe that's what you're doing. But for the most part, people are, are, are not buying distilled water for drinking purposes. Right. But distilled water, even though it is probably the purest form of water you can get, is not necessarily better for any reason, not for not for health or for experience of drinking. Right. Now, in terms of just trying to get down to the question, though, well, what what does it taste like? Okay, you know, we're, we're saying it can, it can go a little in this direction, a little in that direction. We have these mineral components, uh, you know, adding to the to the flavor. But, but what is the taste itself? And I think one of the interesting things about that question is that it forces you to take a step back and think about taste itself. Um, you know, taste uh, involves both sensations on the tongue and uh, olfactory information as well. So it's not only, you know, it's not only tasting with the mouth, it's smelling uh, uh, whatever you know, it is that you're consuming as well. Um, 
and uh, and certainly we do taste contents in the water, though under ideal circumstances that not that's not going to push you hard in any direction. But but obviously, if you dilute some sugar in a glass of the universal solvent and drink it, you'll find it sweet. Uh, salt water tastes salty. Your sense of taste is still weighing in on the water. Uh, but in terms of the uh, this kind of brings us back to the same question. Does the water itself have a taste or is it just the vehicle for these various flavors, be it uh, salt or sugar or, you know, a, a slight hint of, of magnesium, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So one idea proposed in the 60s and 70s by psychologist Linda uh, Bartoshuk was that the taste of water is more of an aftertaste of prior eating and drinking. And uh, this, too, I guess, is more in line with the idea of water as the vehicle of flavor, but something that is in and of itself flavorless. Mm, So the idea would be that, uh, like, when you take a drink of water, you are somehow re-experiencing flavors of foods you may have eaten most recently. Yeah, and this will become important again. We have to realize that when you take a sip of water, you are not introducing water, no matter how sterile you, you, your water is, your mouth is, is not sterile. You know, mm-hmm. your, your mouth is going to, even if you've, if you've just brushed your teeth, great, but that you're going to have some um, semblance of, uh, of, the, of that uh, uh, experience in your mouth. If you're eating dinner, you know, there's going to be the, the hint of food or drink uh, as well. So, uh, yeah, you're not introducing the water into a neutral place. If nothing else, you, your saliva is present. Emily Underwood wrote an excellent short 2017 piece for the American Association for the Advancement of Science on this topic, the flavor of water. Um, and uh, uh, at one point, uh, she's uh, citing Zachary Knight. Oh, who is one of the three authors of the the uh, research summary, Thirst, in uh, current biology that I was referring to in the last episode, and I'll be uh, talking about again in a few minutes. Yeah. So Underwood points to... Um, Something uh, that uh, that we discussed in the last episode that, you know, ultimately when we're getting into taste, when we're getting into um, water detection in the mouth, uh, the, the molecular and cellular mechanisms here are, are not that well understood. And then she also touches uh, on some of Knight's uh, research regarding the, the, the thirst trigger, uh, you know, where, where that is, seems to um, uh, locate in the brain, and then ultimately what's, where is the trigger in the, in the rest of the body. Uh, but we'll come back to that in a bit. Yeah. But I guess there are somewhat separate questions for can you detect water in your mouth versus can you taste water? I mean, th- those are slightly, slightly different, right? Yeah, but but then again, <laughs> when you start thinking about like what what taste is, maybe uh, they're not that different. Like it's but, but but it basically comes down to yeah, it's not about interpreting these minerals or sweetness or saltiness, but like the just the the basic signal of it is water, it is in my mouth, you know, um, and then ultimately being able to tell if something is not water. Um, like, or, or if, it, or if the water is, you know, too far in a particular direction, like, oh, it is, it is actually oil and water and not just water. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted water, that sort of question. Uh, so researchers have been trying to isolate water sensing taste receptor cells on the tongue. Um, of particular note here is the paper, the cellular mechanism for water detection in the mammalian taste system by Zochi et al published in nature neuroscience in 2017. Um, this was a team, I believe, from the uh, California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, and they were working with mice. 
Uh, and this is this is one of those those studies that um, I mean it's already an interesting area, like using mice to figure out how we're tasting. But then it it goes in ultimately uh, strange directions uh, that are pretty fascinating. So they were they were using um, different varieties of mice with specific types of taste receptor cells genetically knocked out in order to try and isolate which ones were seemingly useful in tasting water. And uh, they found that the acid-sensing, sour taste receptor cells seemed to be the most involved. Uh, Mm. Mice with those knocked out took far longer distinguishing oily water from clean water. Um, uh, In in the the, the words of the study, uh, this, quote, compromised discrimination between water and non-aqueous fluids. So these cells seem like they may they may well be uh, very much involved in uh, in the process. Interesting. Okay, so if we are actually tasting water, it may rely more on the cells that normally taste sourness or acidity than other taste receptor cells, or at least in mice. And if if the same held true in humans, that would be the case for us, right? But this is where the mouse experiment uh, from this team gets weird. Uh, um, so to, to further test this out, they bred mice that could taste light with these uh, acid-sensing TRCs, uh, taste receptor cells. They trained them to drink water from a spigot, and they replaced that spigot with an optic fiber cable. So they, they, uh, they apparently treated the mice, in this case, they apparently treated the light as if they were tasting water. But they didn't stop. They kept drinking the light long after uh, they, uh, they would have n- uh, normally stopped drinking water. So the acid-sensing TRCs might be involved in triggering drinking, uh, but they might not be involved in stopping you from drinking, like saying, okay, well, that's, that's all the water I need to drink right now. Um, and, and, um, and, and I'm not sure. There may be other complications there. I mean, once you, you have a, an animal drinking light and not actual water, um, it, it just seems to me like there might there might be other things going on there on a very physical basis. So this would be taste receptor cells in the mouth, but they're like uh, optically sensitive cells. A- am I right about this? Yes, they're literally it, like drinking light with their mouth, like letting light shine into the oral cavity. Yes, it. Uh, it I mean, it sounds insane when you when you say it out loud, but uh, but yeah, there's there's actually a, a YouTube video about it from Science Magazine titled "These Mice Are Drinking Light." Uh, So if if anyone needs to to, to actually see what we're talking about here, uh, pull that up. And yeah, just, it's, it's a, this, this black mouse uh, going up to this, um, this little receptacle and it it appears to be drinking, but there's blue light flooding out of the hole. Okay. And it's got light sensitive cells in its mouth. So the mouse's brain is reacting as if by shining light into its mouth, it was swallowing water. Yes. That's crazy, man. Yeah, it is. This is, this is. It's 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 mind blowing on on several levels here. Um, so ultimately, this this all might be related to changes in pH level uh, when in a normal situation when you know a mouse or any mammal supposedly is drinking something that is not light uh, when it uh, it tries out the water saliva uh, is washing around in the mouth and the removal of saliva might be key to sensing water again coming back to what we said earlier about. Uh, you know, you, water is not entering into a neutral uh, environment when it goes in your mouth. It's going to interact with at least saliva. And in doing so, that might change the pH level, which triggers these um, these TRCs on the tongue. Um, that seems to be the basic framework we're, we're potentially looking at here. Oh, that's interesting. So at least according to, to the idea here, part of the sensation of 
of drinking water might be the water's ability to wash natural saliva out of the mouth. Right. Though, of course, standard caveat that uh, more research is is required and that we still don't we still don't have this one knocked 100 percent. but it's yeah it's it ultimately it it makes you rethink again what taste actually is and consider there there may be precise triggers in place for detecting water and distinguishing from other liquids and then also uh letting you know that you have had enough water like all these things that we just take for granted we think of them as we think of them as choices that we make like i have i have i am i have decided now i must have water uh i have decided now that uh I don't need any more water, but but these are all tied into into this intricate um, uh, biological system. All right, well, Rob, if you're ready, I wanted to uh, discuss some more of the things I was reading in that uh, 2016 article in Current Biology that was about the biology of thirst. Uh, Again, this was by David Lieb, Christopher Zimmerman, and Zachary Knight. Let's do it. All right. Now, we already talked about some of the conditions that will trigger thirst and water-seeking behavior in animals, such as rodents and humans. Uh, uh, Commonly, one thing would be a decrease in water volume in the body, but another thing would be an increase in what's called uh, blood osmolality, O-S-M-O-L-A-L-I-T-Y. I spell it because that word will keep coming up in this discussion. Osmolality is the concentration of substances dissolved in the water content of the body. So the blood osmolality will go up, say, if you consume salt or consume other kinds of uh, salts of various minerals, whether that's sodium or magnesium or whatever. Uh, There are lots of things dissolved in the blood, and as the concentration of those things dissolved in the blood goes up, that's, that's known as increasing osmolality. And as we uh, discussed in the last episode, your your osmolality really needs to be pretty tightly constrained within an ideal range, or it can start leading to system-wide problems with cellular function, because cells need a pretty tightly controlled electrochemical gradient on each side of their uh, their membranes in order to control the passage of ions in and out of the cell to you know take in things the cell needs, to release waste products, and so forth. So uh, so in order for your body to work right, it needs to have the right level or the right concentration of things like salts dissolved in its water. But you also uh, have to keep your your uh, body, your, your body's water volume at the right level uh, in order to maintain ideal blood pressure because that blood's got to flow. And if, if you suddenly are to remove a lot of liquid from the body, suddenly the heart has to pump harder and harder to get the red blood cells to, to all the different parts of your body. So keeping up, uh, keeping up the right amount of water in the body and the correct concentration of substances dissolved in that water is crucial. And uh, that dichotomy we talked about last time actually breaks down into two distinct types of dehydration that the authors talk about. And these two types of dehydration actually lead to different behavioral reactions in animals. So you can have dehydration uh, within cells or dehydration between cells. A loss of water from within cells, known as intracellular dehydration, is usually caused by high blood osmolality. So the introduction of salts or other uh, things like that into the body. This draws water out of cells by osmosis and causes the cells to shrink, which certainly doesn't sound good. 
standard behavioral response to to uh, that kind of thing, that uh, uh, intracellular dehydration is thirst. You want water, so you go get it. Loss of water from between cells is known as extracellular dehydration, and this usually is caused by a loss of total blood volume, for example, by bleeding. You know, if you cut yourself and lose a bunch of liquid out of your arm or something, uh, you will lose total blood content without changing the body's osmolality. You know, you think about it that way, like you're the the liquid is going down but you're not changing how salty the liquid that's left is mm-hmm. so in order to uh, recover from that condition you will actually need both water and salt to replenish the lost volume just drinking water alone would leave your osmolality too low so the behavioral response to uh loss of total water content or content from between cells is usually thirst plus what the authors call salt appetite. You want water and salt at the same time. But uh, interestingly, many things that happen to the body cause both types of dehydration at the same time. Uh, and the example they give is sweating. This is very common, right? You know, you, mm-hmm. you go out in the sun and you sweat. Well, sweat is not only a loss of blood volume. Uh, sweat is salty, but sweat is actually less salty than your blood. So if your body is losing liquid that is less salty than its water content overall, like sweat is, the salt content of what's left behind is therefore increasing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So the extra salt left over inside you when you sweat causes an increase in blood osmolality, again, triggering a thirst for water. It's kind of counterintuitive because if you ever do taste sweat it you know it tastes salty so you would think it would feel like you're losing salt but you're actually gaining salt as in relationship to the amount of water left in you yeah i think we've touched on on this on the show before that um that that sometimes we give too much credit to sweat in its ability to remove things from our body uh certainly when (laughs) some arguments for the removal of uh, impurities through sweat for example Oh, yeah, yeah, right. With people who think that you can like cleanse all the toxins by sweating or something. I mean, sweating's great. No, no mm-hmm. knocking on yeah, sweating. Yeah, and, uh, and if memory serves, like, I mean, there is some toxin removal, but not, not anywhere near as good as, say, good old fashioned urination. I mean, that's, that's, right. that's why we have urination. Exactly. So uh, I guess from here we go on to talk about uh, how the brain senses and monitors osmolality. Uh, this is what the authors say is, quote, probably the most important homeostatic signal for drinking in everyday life is the brain's ability to monitor osmolality. That's what's going to be causing you to go drink water. Um, and the authors point out some interesting things, one of which is that when blood osmolality and blood volume are both threatened at the same time, for example, uh, if they both increase above the ideal range at the same time, the body places a higher priority on defending the the ideal osmolality than it does on defending volume. Uh, so examples of this would be, you know, hypernatremia having too much sodium or hyperglycemia having too much glucose in the blood. Uh, whatever it is, the uh, the state of having too high of an osmolality, which they call hypertonicity, is probably more threatening, more of a danger overall than uh, than having not quite the right amount of uh, water volume in your body. Mm. 
But anyway, well, you know, so what takes care of this whole job? Well, you've got some physical structures in your brain that sort of that dip their finger into the soup to 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 taste it for salt and uh, and and let you know what's going on. Uh, both of them are small; they reside in the forebrain, and they are known as first of all the subfornical organ or SFO, and then the organum vasculosum of the lamina terminalis or OVLT. Uh, now, you've probably heard before of something called the blood-brain barrier. This is a system of border cells that prevent things that happen to be floating around in the blood from passing non-selectively into the brain. Uh, so, you know, the brain does need blood. It has to receive oxygen and other nutrients from blood flow. But the brain has to also protect itself against totally unregulated exchange with the blood. And there may be multiple reasons for this, but one of the, the main ones I've uh, seen is that this prevents bloodborne pathogens from infecting brain tissue. So that seems important. Mm-hmm. So in, in regions where it's active, the blood-brain barrier only allows selective passage of certain types of material from the blood into the neurons. But if you're part of the brain that needs to get raw data about the contents of the blood moment by moment, uh, apparently it won't do to be hiding behind this protective fence of cells. So uh, according to the authors here, the SFO and the OVLT, uh, though they are in the brain, are located outside the blood-brain barrier. So they can sort of taste the blood river unfiltered, (laughs) undiluted to get a raw sense of what's going on. Uh, To read directly from the paper here, quote, It is thought that these SFO and OVLT neurons monitor the blood osmolality directly, possibly via stretch-sensitive ion channels embedded in their plasma membranes that detect changes in cell volume following intracellular dehydration. However, the identity of the specific ion channel or other protein responsible for osmosensing by these neurons is unknown. Furthermore, the possibility cannot be excluded that other cell types, such as glia, play an important role in osmosensation. So here they uh, they identify, they put the flag up for one more thing that hasn't fully been figured out in, uh, in the science of thirst is what is the direct molecular mechanism that the neurons in these brain regions use to detect changes in blood osmolality? It may be these stretch sensitive cells that, you know, get dehydrated and then send information based on that to, to the brain regions that then filter out uh, to, to other brain regions from there. Uh, but we don't know for sure. Anyway, that is sensing intracellular dehydration or increases in blood osmolality. But what about that other kind, extracellular dehydration, where the blood volume actually decreases overall, such as after bleeding? Well, decreases in blood volume are known as hypovolemia, like low volume, hypovolemia. Uh, And they correspond with a decrease in blood pressure, hypotension. Uh, And the body's reactions to hypotension uh, take place as sort of a complex chain of mechanisms involving multiple multiple organs and several forms of a hormone, a very important hormone called angiotensin. You might see this uh, abbreviated sometimes with like capital letters A-N-G-I and then maybe A-N-G-I-I for angiotensin 1 and angiotensin 2. 
Apparently, the, the most crucial form of the hormone is angiotensin II, which causes things like the narrowing of blood vessels. So if you shrink blood vessels and make them smaller, that helps keep blood pressure up when volume mm. is low. Uh, and it also leads to water reuptake by the kidneys. The kidneys are like holding fast to the water content rather than just squandering it as they might if uh, you had plenty of water in your body. And there's evidence that the presence of angiotensin II, this hormone, also causes a thirst drive to be generated in the brain, primarily involving the SFO or the subfornical organ. Interestingly, in rodents, if you just give them straight angiotensin II, it causes what the authors call profound water consumption, just mm. like you know, voluminous drinking of water. But in humans, apparently uh, angiotensin II levels, quote, do not correlate well with the perception of thirst, and infusions of physiologic levels of angiotensin II do not stimulate drinking. Interesting. So perhaps while this hormone does things to increase blood pressure, like constrict blood vessels and cause water reuptake by the kidneys, it does not make us thirsty for water like it does in other animals for some reason. Hmm. The authors write, quote, while this suggests that angiotensin II might be less important for regulation of drinking in humans, interpretation of these negative results is complicated by the fact that peripheral infusion of angiotensin II rapidly increases blood pressure, which can then feed back to counteract any effects of angiotensin II on thirst. So maybe there are just complicated balancing interactions here that when, you know, if you directly infuse this hormone uh, it it increases blood pressure, which has other downstream effects, which which counteract the onset of thirst. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I guess just it just goes to show, uh, you know, one of the factors of, of, of experiments with 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 mice and, and other non human mammals is that we have a whole lot in common with them, but not everything is going to um, uh, is, is right. going to apply to us one to one. Right. A lot does, but not everything. Okay, but anyway, I guess what we're trying to uh, figure out here is building a bridge from our existing knowledge about these brain regions that play a role in monitoring uh, the body's osmolality and water content and uh, and regulate in these hormones that help regulate the body's physiologic response to dehydration and how that connects to the actual behavior and the drives that we sense when we get thirsty and go get water. Um, so there, there are sort of system-wide homeostatic responses when, when we get dehydrated. Again, the SFO and the OVLT, uh, together with another region in between them, the median preoptic nucleus, or MNPO, these three regions together comprise a hub called the lamina terminalis. This is sort of the brain's fluid control center. Uh, what is fairly well understood is the the autonomic and neuroendocrine pathways by which the body responds to dehydration. You know all these things we've been talking about: the the angiotensin II, the constriction of blood vessels to increase blood pressure, water reuptake by the kidneys, the release of other hormones, and not just angiotensin, but things like vasopressin and oxytocin. Mm -hmm. But what is less well understood are the mechanisms leading to the generation of thirst as a motivation state. But we know some things that are very interesting. Uh, so to come back to something you actually mentioned earlier uh, in the episode, Rob, the brain's regulation of water drinking is not based only on the current osmolality of the blood. So it's not just these brain regions that, you know, dip a finger in and, and see how salty the soup <laughs> is. 
the brain also appears to change our motivation to drink water before changes actually show up in the blood. There are behavior changes that occur in anticipation of changes in osmolality. So what would this mean in, in, in plain English? Okay, so you're out in the hot sun wrestling alligators or you know, you're working up a sweat, whatever it is you're doing. And you come in, you get in the shade, and you drink a nice glass of water. When you do that, there is actually a delay on the order of tens of minutes. It might be 10, 20, or even more minutes before the water that you just drank is fully absorbed by the digestive system and added into the blood. However, it might just take you a few seconds to drink a glass of water and then decide whether you're going to drink more. So... If it's taking your body tens of minutes to fully incorporate the water you've just consumed and for that to you know show up in a blood osmolality test, how come you don't just keep drinking water constantly until that happens? You know, you don't even if you're thirsty, you don't usually drink a glass of water and then just fill up another one and another and another and another for you know 15 minutes or something. Mm -hmm. If your level of thirst were only based on your blood osmolality, you might do that. You might kill yourself just drinking gallons of water while you're waiting for your fluid monitoring system to register the changes, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it needs to be. Uh, again, it, it comes back to just what a fine balance it is, and, uh, and and therefore you need you need different sensors in different places in the the human mechanism here. Right. So the sensation of your thirst being quenched by drinking water must be created by a different process altogether. The authors write, quote, thirst is not quenched by the reverse of the process that generates it. Instead, the brain appears to somehow detect the intake of liquid. Uh, it's usually thought that this happens somewhere in the oropharynx, in the, the middle part of the throat, and then somehow adjusts the feeling of thirst in anticipation of the coming changes in blood osmolality. So it looks like what happens is that you're dehydrated, you drink water, the swallowing of water is somehow sensed in the throat, and then the, these sensations are transmitted to the subfornical organ, the, the SFO, and then from there they inhibit thirst-generating pathways. And so this raises interesting questions. How exactly do we sense water intake in the throat? Uh, this was not well understood at the time this paper was written. I actually have come across a couple of studies uh, in the years since that we can talk about as we go on. We might get more into those in the next part of the series. Um, but at the time, some of the ideas out there were, well, maybe it has something to do with temperature. Apparently, cooling of the throat triggers water intake signals, and uh, evidence for this claim would be that research has found that cold liquids inhibit thirst faster than warm liquids. I, I haven't tried it myself, but that sounds correct to me. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. And it would make sense. Water usually tends to cool the mouth and the throat, and the, this cooling may be used as a rough signal that water is coming in. Uh, also, it, uh, it seems that cooling of the mouth on its own, even if it's not water, just making the mouth colder, can somehow reduce thirst and reduce activity of the SFO. Hmm, interesting. So you would potentially be able to use just like a cooling breath uh, technique to, uh, to, to inhibit thirst. Possibly, if you know, if the temperature explanation ha has anything going for it, uh, but there may be other things as well. There may be other ways of sensing water in the oral cavity. Maybe some stuff more along the lines of what you were talking about earlier. Things could have to do with uh, 
uh, taste sensors that that somehow de- detect the presence of water through acid sensing taste receptors or something, uh, or there could be there may be some limited evidence that stretch receptors and osmosensors in the stomach might also detect water intake before full absorption. But again, at the time of this summary in 2016, this was just not fully understood. I guess one way of looking at it would be that it's it's not necessarily like one trigger or one sensor. Right. Uh, that is uh, that's, that's playing a, a crucial role here. It's more of a a, a whole suite of things that is um, that is generating this um, this this understanding of how much water uh, has entered the system. Right, but it, whatever the exact mechanism is, it's definitely anticipatory in nature. It's definitely mm-hmm. changing your behavior before the thing that your behavior is supposed to fix has actually changed yet. Wow. Like when you're done drinking the glass of water, you're still dehydrated. You're going to be dehydrated for another 10 to 15 minutes at least. It's it's the kind of excellence in supply chain management yeah. that technology <laughs> co- companies are, are chasing after. You know, the uh-huh. idea that, that they will anticipate the need <laughs> um, um, and, and then, uh, you know, be able to, um, uh, to, to, to alter the supply chain, uh, um, uh, you know, at, at moment to moment to make sure yeah. that the need is met without wasting water or product or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I like it. Okay, there's more anticipation to come. How about anticipatory regulation of thirst from eating, from food? Because Mm. when we eat food, thirst appears to be generated in anticipation of coming changes to blood osmolality. So why would eating food make us need water? Well, uh, first of all, fluids are used in digestion. You think about when you eat food, you generate saliva, you, uh, you know, the, not to be gross, but you, there's a lot of lubrication that needs to happen, like swallowing uh, requires some water. And oh, I mean, do- you have to, yeah, you have to, 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 to chew up the food yeah. and form the bolus that will then travel down the throat. I mean, uh, Yum. I, th- I think we've, we've covered that on the show before. Like, think about it today, your next meal, uh, really focus hard on everything it. that's going on in your mouth. It's a, <laughs> it's a beautiful chorus of disassembly and then reassembly into the right sort of package to then make the journey down to the stomach. It's really, it's like, it's beautiful and it's horrible. You can't think about it while you're eating, or at least mm-hmm. I find I can't. Just think, I mean, is, have you ever thought of a more appetizing idea that your like mouth and throat are lubricating the ball of food that you're smashing up? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so that's one thing. But then the other half of it is that eating usually increases blood osmolality by adding salt and other things to the body. Yes, yes. So much salt, so much salt. So the body appears to have an anticipatory response to eating that is generating thirst before those changes even register. And uh, this thirst that comes from eating is known as prandial thirst. Mm. It seems to occur before changes in blood osmolality come into effect. So uh, uh, a lot of animals are observed to drink at the same time that they eat if they're able. Uh, the, The mechanism of this anticipatory neural pathway is still not fully understood. But uh, if uh, prandial thirst is not sated, I I mentioned this earlier, sometimes animal brains tend to react by reducing appetite until water is consumed. Uh, This is known as dehydration-induced anorexia. Hmm. But in in general, dehydration will cause animals to restrict their food intake, with some exceptions, of course, because some animals, you know, they get their water entirely from food and so forth. But dehydration-induced anorexia tends to 
I thought this was interesting. Reduce meal size, but not meal number. Hmm. So uh, it it might not affect how often an animal is willing to eat, but how much they eat when they do eat. Uh, Meaning that uh, it probably works by causing an animal to terminate feeding behaviors earlier than they would normally each time it it has a meal. Hmm. Now, at the the end of their write-up here, the, the authors acknowledge that uh, acknowledge some exceptions to the stuff they're talking about. Uh, these generalizations tend to be true for humans and rodents and some other animals, but of course there are very different ecological niches that will cause variation to these generalizations. Uh, for example, uh, a lot of grazing herbivores do not seem to experience prandial thirst or, or thirst related to eating, you know, because they eat all day, but they only drink if, drink water a few times a day. And then there are very different kinds of animals like amphibians that don't technically drink at all. Like many amphibians just absorb water through their skin. I, we've talked about amphibians before on the show and about how the, um, you know, the, uh, how, how delicate their place in the environment can be. And this is, this is part of it. It's like if, if, if I'm in the environment, I'm drinking it, uh, I am breathing it. Uh, my, my skin is the, uh, is, is the barrier through which all this takes place. Yeah, uh, very different relationship to one's environment. Very, very different uh, kind of chemistry of being for the mm-hmm. for the amphibian. I, I recall it's been a while, but I recall reading a funny article about uh, terrestrial toads that would primarily do water absorption through their pelvic regions. So they sort of like like thrust their lower bodies and and bellies into any surface that's wet while they're while they're hanging out in water absorption mode. All right, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode, but we will be back for a third Thirst episode. We have a lot of uh, uh, additional information we want to get to. Don't worry, there will be parasites in it, uh, so it should be uh, it should be a grotesque uh, good time. And of course, in the meantime, uh, write in. Let us know your thoughts on water. I mean, all of you are water drinkers. You consume water one way or another, and I imagine you have some thoughts on all of this. Do you, do you love drinking water? Do you hate drinking water? Um, uh, is there? Uh, what are your thoughts on the the, the consumption of cold water versus hot water, um, the, the, or maybe you prefer the lukewarm water? I mean, they, they, I guess there are factors we didn't even get into. Uh, you know, like sometimes cold water can be uh, sensitive on the teeth and gums. Uh, the same can be said for uh, for hot water as well. So I don't know. Perhaps you have thoughts on that. Have you never drunk water? Have you? Uh, <laughs> are you a creature that only absorbs water from chicken nuggets? <laughs> oh. Oh, the, the chicken chicken nugget water, yes. Uh, well, anyway, write and let us know. Uh, it's all fair game. Uh, in the meantime, as usual, core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, we have Listener Mail on Monday, Artifact on Wednesday, and on Friday we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set most serious matters aside and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode, or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Thank you.